I don't know how you feel, but right now to me it seems that, that more and more our, our culture, our nation, the culture in our nation, is embracing what the Bible calls the spirit of the Antichrist, or spirit of Antichrist. And I don't mean the Antichrist that the Bible says will come in the last days. I'm talking about just a general spirit of Antichrist that, that John warns us about in 1 John 4. You can look at that, the first three or four verses talk about it. But the, the Antichrist spirit is a spirit that John says has gone into the world and that we can recognize it because it, it does not confess Jesus. And part of the picture is that it opposes Jesus, right? It is a spirit in the world that is against Christ. It is a spirit in the world that will cause people to not only reject Jesus, but will often cause them to become hostile toward the name of Jesus and toward the the church of, of Jesus. And as you look at our country, it seems that more and more this this spirit seems to be being embraced. There is a, a growing hostility toward anything that is really biblically faithful Christianity. I, I think of just a couple of examples. Uh, one is, I saw an article this week where Amazon, of course they're a private company, basically they can do whatever they want to, they, they stopped carrying a book by a, a Christian guy who is a, he's basically ex-gay. He lived as a gay man for several years. He got saved. He came out of that lifestyle and he, he writes books and some of his books are helping homosexuals see hope in Christ. And all of his books that talk about that, they are no longer going to be carried by Amazon. They have just decided they will not stock them any longer because, because of the message that they contain. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the, city, or the, the, the state of California passed a, a resolution in their state government. And it's a resolution, so it's not a law, but it's a resolution. And what it does is they more essentially send it to all of the churches in California, encouraging them not to preach or say anything negatively about homosexuality, abortion, transgender type issues, because it makes people feel bad. Uh, and again, that's not a law. They can't make them stop. But it's, a, it's basically the, the state of California saying to the church in California... Don't preach those things anymore. And on and on. There's just lots more stuff like that that we are seeing in our country. And as we look, we can see that really things are, to me at least as I look at the culture, things are getting, they're getting bad and they're getting worse. There's depravity is seemingly on the increase in great lengths and to speak out against it is something that you will find sharp opposition to. Uh, Again, a lot of it ends up having to do with sexuality and sexual issues, but uh, it wasn't a couple of months ago. There was a a 10-year-old boy who dresses in drag and performs drag shows, danced, and kind of did a striptease-type dance at a, a gay bar. His parents took him there. They let him do this. And, and these gay men put dollar bills in his shorts and things along those lines. And, 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 and our culture, American culture, went wild about it. That is awesome. This kid at such a young age knows, or this girl at a young age knows exactly who she is, they said. And when people would speak out and say, man, that's, that's terrible. I mean, that's profane. Well, they were the problem. 
They were the ones causing the issues. Uh, and, and this is going to be more and more as time goes on. I think Scripture teaches that more and more towards the, we get closer to the return of Jesus, stuff like this is going to happen. The culture will get more depraved. They will get more hostile toward Christianity. And so we can bank on that. But while we can bank on it happening, we don't have to passively sit by and do nothing about it. We can fight back. But as Christians, the way that we fight back, it isn't necessarily through laws and through political power. We fight back with with spiritual weapons is what the Bible says. And one of the spiritual weapons that we have, it is prayer. So tonight what we are going to do is we're going to take time and pray for our country. We're going to pray for the condition of our country and the direction of our country. And I want to look at a familiar passage to start with to kind of show us that this is what the Bible says that we're supposed to do. So open your Bible to 1 Timothy 2. It's where we're going to start. First Timothy 2 and the, the first seven verses are very familiar. Paul says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications and prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in, God, in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this passage, but there's some truths that I want to hit on. First, we are told to pray for all people. That is a constant refrain in Scripture that we are meant to pray for all people. So, to put in what we've talked about tonight, you know, we should pray probably for the family of that little boy that's sending him into those places. We should pray for that little boy who at a young age of 10 is already deeply deceived and and headed off into a terrible pathway. Um, But, particularly, Paul encourages us to pray for kings... And all those who are in authority. Now, in America, of course, we don't have kings. But we do have presidents and congressmen and senators. And we have uh, city councilmen. And we have judges. And we have all of these kinds of people. And we should regularly pray for them. We should pray for our, our local government. We should pray for our state government. We should pray... For our federal government. Now our focus tonight is just on the the federal level. But we should pray for all those who are in authority in our culture. Now Chuck Smith, one of the pastors I read sometimes, he says this about it. He says the real purpose of government is to preserve the good. That's the purpose of government. The preservation of good. And all laws should be designed for the preservation of good. Because there are evil influences and powers and government is actually ordained for the purpose of preserving good. Keeping out the evil. And when a government no longer is fulfilling that function, right, of keeping out the evil, preserving the good, the evil that they allow will ultimately destroy that government. 
Study your history books and you'll see that it's true over and over again. Most governments begin with the high ideal of the preservation of good. But in time, the corrupt forces move in. The laws were liberalized to where there was no longer, where good was no longer being preserved, but evil was being allowed, being tolerated, and then protected by the laws. The next thing was that evil then overthrew the government. Now that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Right? Notice especially the idea of what he says. That when good was no longer preserved and evil was allowed, it was first tolerated. It was then protected. Right? And as we're going to see in our culture, it is going to have been tolerated and protected and then enforced. Right? I mean, the day will come when churches will not, where the state and local and federal legislations, where they will hand down legislation, not a, a recommendation that you don't preach certain things, but they will hand down a requirement that you cannot preach certain things. Right? We, we are largely in the place that he talked about right here in America right now. Evil is protected. And it is called good. Good is now attacked and it is called evil. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for the leaders of our nation. Now Paul gives us the reason that we are to pray. Right? We are to pray... For kings and all those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and, and honesty. And the word honesty there, it carries with the idea of, of reverence. Honest in our devotion. Openly reverent and fervent in our service and devotion to Jesus. Right? That's the reason that we pray for our leaders. Is so that they will lead, govern, make and enforce laws that, that promote peace that promote godliness, they promote unity, and they promote freedom. And that's a big thing. We, we don't pray for our leaders to promote our political agenda or our, our, our ideological ideas. We pray for our leaders so that we can freely live lives of devotion to Jesus. That's really the point. We want it to make it so that there is freedom that we can say, thus saith the word of God. That we can practice what the Bible says. That there will be liberty for us to worship God, to gather like this, with no fear of police bursting in or being tossed in a prison or things like that. That is the reason that we pray. For the good of the country, for the good of the church, for the glorification of Christ and for the advancement of the kingdom. Now in verse 3, there's a continuation of this idea. And he says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. The this that is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior is that we pray for our leaders. And that we pray for them so that we can live lives of quiet, peaceable, godliness and reverence. Right? That's the point. It is good and acceptable to God that we do this. When we pray for our leaders... It is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Now, we want to understand that something about this that, that is important is that we are to pray for our leaders whether we like them or not. Right? And, and that is a huge, huge thing for us to understand. Right? Look at the, the top list right there. I've given you a list of, of some of our leaders. 
Our President Donald Trump, our Vice President Mike Pence, the Speaker of the House is Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. There are Democrats and Republicans in that list right there. And we are to pray for all of them. Right? We are to pray for President Donald Trump, whether we're Republican or Democrat, whether we love him or whether we hate him. Right? In, in the next election, if we come up with President Kamala Harris, we are to pray for President Kamala Harris, whether we love her or whether we hate her. Right? We do not get to choose. I'm only going to pray for the ones that I like. That is not godly. That is not good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I know this because when Paul wrote this, the king, the Caesar over Rome, was not a friend to Christianity. He was actively persecuting it. By the time his, his reign ended, he would do things like send Christians into the, into the lion's pits where the lions would tear them apart for sport. He would dip Christians in pitch and set them on fire and use that to, to light his parties at night. And as they burned alive, he would carry on gross immoral orgies and parties. And yet Paul said, pray for your kings. Pray for those who are in authority. Right, so we do this, no matter who the president is, no matter who the speaker of the house is, we pray for them. Right, we, we should pray for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has a lot of power. The things that they decide can make or break the nation. Right, we want them to make good and godly and wise decisions. And, and that's the thing. Good, godly, and wise. We don't want them to make Democrat decisions. We don't want them to make Republican decisions. We want them to make good, godly, and wise decisions. Right? And so there's some, some ways, some requests to pray for our leaders. Pray they would fear God and recognize they are accountable to God for each and every decision and each and every act. Right? Government, there is, I don't know of any agency in the world that can become more corrupt with power, drunk with power, than political offices. And they can begin to believe that they are the highest authority there is. And when they do, they act in corrupt and wicked ways. Always. But when they understand that they are accountable to Almighty God for each and every decision that they make, each and every law that they pass, it changes how they are. Pray God would grant them wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Pray that if they're unsaved, they would be drawn to a saving encounter with Jesus Christ. And if they're born again, they would be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. For again, nothing is more corrupting than the power that comes through politics. I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to be in a high-ranking political position and remain godly at the same time. I mean, you gotta, you just got to wonder, right? I mean, you look at, at politicians, right? This is just kind of... An extra thought. Very few were millionaires when they went into politics. They go into politics and they make this set amount of money every year. That we know, we can look up and find out how much the Nancy Pelosi makes as a senator, how much extra she gets as Speaker of the House. 
We can look and we can see how much Mitch McConnell makes as a house from the House of Representatives, how much extra he gets for being the Speaker of the House. And yet, we have to wonder, how is it every one of these politicians are worth millions and millions of dollars? How do they make 60, 70, 80, maybe $100,000 a year, go into office worth $100,000 a year, and in three years they're worth $5 million? How does that happen? Political corruption and graft. It would be difficult to turn that sort of thing down. So pray that if they're Christians, they would be strong in the Lord, the power of His might, and they would resist that. Pray they would recognize their own inadequacy. And they would pray to seek the will of God. Pray they would value and regard the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Christ. Pray they would receive godly counsel and have God-fearing advisors. That's huge. Right? Everyone who makes decisions, they need godly counsel. And the thing about godly counsel and God-fearing advisors is godly counsel is not yes-man counsel. Right? Because godly counsel is... This is right and this is wrong. I don't care what your constituents think. I don't care what the party says. I don't care what everybody else says. This is right and this is wrong. And everyone, everyone in life needs people who will stand up to them and say, that's a wrong thing to do. That is the wrong decision. But those who make the laws of the land especially, they need someone. They do not need yes men. They need wise and godly, God-fearing counselors who will say that is wrong. They will listen to them. Pray for that. Pray they would be honest and faithful to spouses and children. Pray they would be honest in their financial, tax, and ethical matters. Pray they would be generous and have a compassionate heart for the poor and the needy. Pray they would redeem their time and have righteous priorities. Pray they would have the courage to resist manipulation, pressure, and the fear of man. Pray they would endeavor to restore the sanctity of life. And with that, Proverbs 16, it says there are six things that God hates, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. One of those is hands that shed innocent blood. One of the things that God brought against King Manasseh, that He said that caused the the judgment to fall, was the shedding of the blood of the innocent, the sacrificing of their children to Moloch. God has never been okay with the murder of innocent children. He wasn't okay when they sacrificed them to Moloch for his blessing. And he's not okay when they're sacrificed on the altar of a woman's right to choose. The murder of the innocent, of the unborn, is a horrific wickedness in our nation. And pray that our politicians would see that. And pray that they would be prepared to give an account to Almighty God. Let's take five or six minutes right now. And let's just pray. Pray to yourself. Pray where you are. Pray for some of these people by name. Use the request given. Pray what's on your heart. But but pray for them.
Father, we come tonight and we love you. You are great and you are awesome and you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful, Lord, for the privilege we have to gather, to study your word, to call out to you the freedom that we do have in America to do this without fear of reprisal, without fear of the secret police coming in to try to arrest us, Father, that, that our worship of you, it is completely allowed. Father, that in our country, that we could go stand on a street corner, we could read from the Bible, and we can proclaim to all that go by the gospel message. We can knock doors, and we can hand out tracts, and we can live our faith as boldly and as openly as we want to. And God, while there may be people who don't like it, there are no laws that would prevent it. There is nothing in that that would lead us to be tossed into a prison and suffer for Christ. Forgive us, God, where we have not taken advantage of that freedom. Forgive us, God, where we have acted as though people saying mean things is equivalent to the persecution and the suffering of Christians around the world who genuinely suffer for being open in their faith. Forgive us for our fear and forgive us for not being more bold and not being more outgoing, talking about Jesus to others. We lift up our elected officials, our leaders, and those in authority in our nation. Father, where they make good and godly decisions, we ask You to bless them. And we ask You to let those prosper. But Father, where they make foolish decisions, where they make ungodly decisions, frustrate them and let them not come to pass in any way. We pray especially for our president, Lord, that you would give him wisdom and that you would give him godly and God-fearing counselors. That, Lord, when he is tempted to do things that are not right, when he is tempted to say things that are not right or make laws that are not just, that they would counsel him and they would advise him against it. Father, let him be humble enough to accept the advice that would go against his natural inclinations. Guide our Supreme Court that they would make wise and godly decisions. Father, give them just those on the court that, that know you. Let your spirit guide them and let them do the things and, and, and just live and decide in light of the fact that they will one day give an account to you. Have your way in our nation, Father. Guide us that we would be a shining city on a hill. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Now turn to Joel 1 and 13. Joel 1 and 13 says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. How, you ministers of the altar? Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of our God. Now, notice the word lament. 
Lament is to passionately express sorrow or grief. Now notice how the people were to lament. Right? They were to, to howl. Right? I mean, we know what a howl is. That is a, a, a loud, wailing cry of, of extreme grief that's going on in their life. Notice that they are also to lay all night in sackcloth before the altar. Now the sackcloth was a, a picture of mourning and repentance. Right? It was a picture when they put on the sackcloth and ashes. It was just a way of expressing visually that they were in deep and great mourning. And then they were to lie all night before the altar, pleading with God, interceding with God for the sake of their nation. Right? And all of this was to flow out of a deep grief that the people, that these people he had, these were spiritual leaders, that they had over the sins of the nation. Right? As they stood there and they ministered to God and they looked out at the nation and they saw all of the sin and all of the wickedness and all the things that abounded in Jewish culture at the time, it was to bring deep grief to their heart to the point that they weren't doing this as a, well, I checked my box, I howled and I, I lamented and I, I laid in the ground and I wore a sackcloth. But this was a genuine expression of their grief at the sins of the people. Now, as, as Americans, we too need to lament for the spiritual condition of our nation. Right? This is something that as Americans, we often... We don't want to do. We don't like to think in those sort of terms that we should lament for our nation, for our national sins. But we should. The spiritual condition of our nation is terrible. Right? Consider that the, we should lament for many reasons. One is we should lament because of the horrible practice of abortion. I mentioned this earlier. But I looked up today and since Roe versus Wade was passed, there have been 61,433,513 abortions. That's in America. That's not worldwide. That is in America. Right? There have been 491,482 abortions in this year alone. Just in 2019, July the 10th. And then according to one, one site, it's like a, an abortion counter. It keeps track of how many happen on the national average. There will be well over 2,000 abortions performed just today. And again, this is just in America. This isn't the worldwide abortion industry. This is just here in our country. We should most certainly lament that. But not only should we, and we talked about some of the depravity, and we often think about it in terms of that. And, and we certainly should lament the growth of depravity and wickedness in our nation. But as a church, we should also lament the state of the American church. The American church is not well. The American church is not as it should be. Spiritual apathy is, is rampant in the American church. 
I've mentioned before, but our generation of Christians right now, we have more opportunity to study and know the Bible than any generation of Christians before us. Right? We probably all have at least one physical Bible, but probably we have more. If we have smartphones, we probably have a, at least one Bible app on our phone. And that one Bible app, it gives us access to virtually every translation of Scripture known to man. We have that kind of access. And yet, our generation of Christians, we are by and large the most biblically illiterate generation of Christians that's ever been. Now that sounds really harsh and really bold, but, but think. Our generation of Christians, we're not sure if Jesus is the only way to heaven or not. Our generation of Christians, we're not sure if homosexuality is a sin or not. Our generation of Christians, we're not sure if the church is important or not. Our generation of Christians, we're not sure if the Bible is inspired or not. Gosh, some people that profess the name of Jesus, they're not even sure that God exists at all. All of that, all of that, every issue that I mentioned and more, it flows out of biblical illiteracy. We just don't know what the Bible says about those things. The apathy is rampant. And, and the result of apathy is that the American church is struggling in so many ways. Right? The, the American church is not doing a good job at discipling our children. Statistically speaking, 75% of young people that are active in church today will not be active in church within five years of graduating high school. I mean, that's a huge number. Right? We have like, between the teen ministry and the children's ministry at our church, we have about 30 that would make up the, the regular bulk of who is normally there. If that statistic holds true for our church, then 22, 23 of those kids will not be in church within five years of graduating. Not, not just, not in our church, but not in any church. And we don't really need a statistic for that, though. Think about our church. How many kids, how many kids have we seen grow up in our church? 17 years here, we've seen quite a few. Out of the, the kids that we've had grow up in our church, how many of those kids grow up and leave church? It's a big number. Huge number of kids that were raised right here in this church. Right? So this isn't the mega church problem. This isn't the liberal church problem. This isn't their problem. Huge numbers of kids that were raised right here sat in these pews, many of whom may have even been baptized in that water. Today they have no care, no concern for Jesus or for the church of Jesus Christ. The church is not doing well in making disciples out of our children. Another result of spiritual apathy is that large numbers of churches close every year. Like, I had to check it, double check it to be sure. 
the latest statistic from those who check such things says there are between six and 10,000 churches in America, not in the world, in America, that close every year. That, that means there's like one or 200 that will close this week. But again, we don't have to go really far out to, to look. How many churches in Diamond have closed in the last few years? I can think of two established, well-established churches. Three, probably, that have been here for years. One that at one point was the largest church in the town. It's gone now. Its buildings are occupied by a different church. It's just, that's just in Guyana. Multiply that by every town and every city and every state in America. And you find that the church is in a steep decline. Now, we, while we are closing six to 10,000, we are starting churches. But only around three to 4,000 a year. That's a pretty steep deficit. And of the churches that are started, not all of them are going to make it. Some of them will be the churches that close this year. Church attendance is in decline. Again, statistically, it's by nine and a half in some places, eleven in others. Um, according to Barna, forty percent of Americans claim to attend church. The reality is only about seventeen percent of Americans actually do. But again, we don't have to go to the world, do we? We can just look at our church. Right? We could look here. Easter, we had like 109 people at church. Out of that 109 people that were here on Easter Sunday, there were maybe three, maybe four, that could legitimately be called visitors. The rest of the hundred and something people that were here would say, if you were to ask them, what church they're a member of, what church they're a part of, they would say Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. When they die and their obituary is put in the paper, it's going to say they were longtime members of the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. And yet, and yet, we will not see many of them again until next Easter or later. Church attendance is in steep decline. And again, that's not just us. Every church in this town is that way. The, in, in Gaiman, there is like 10 to 12% of the Gaiman population that goes to church on any given Sunday. Now, to put that in perspective about how bad that is, in China, where it's essentially illegal to be a Christian and go to church, they have about 8 to 9% of the population. Now, we're doing this much better than communist China where they'll be thrown in jail for going to an underground church. So again, take what's going on here and multiply that by every church in our city, every city in our state, and every state in America. And that's what's going on. And so what all of this means on a practical level is that the church in America is losing. And we're losing badly. I mean, it's not just we're losing a little bit. We are losing churches faster than we can plant them. We are losing... The population of America grows. The attendance of the church declines each and every year. A startling statistic, and I meant to look it up before church, but I forgot until just now. 
But where America was at one point kind of the center of Christianity, the center of the Christian movement in the world, it's not that way anymore. Statistically, like just over one out of every three Christians is actually an African because church is growing so rapidly in Africa, so rapidly in Iran, so rapidly in China. The, the American church is actually, we are the minority number of Christians in the world despite our great freedom to worship the Lord. The church in America is losing badly. And you have to wonder, how, how long, how many years can we keep losing like this before the church in America is all but gone? Now we would say, well, that can't happen. Now that wouldn't happen in America. But let's think about Germany. Germany is the home of the Protestant Reformation, the land of Luther. I mean, if any place should be a thriving center of Protestant, fervent, doctrinal, biblical Christianity, it should be Germany. And yet, the church in Germany and in Europe as a whole is largely dead. The historic cathedrals are typically museums and not churches any longer. If Christianity can all but die in Luther's Germany, the heart of the Reformation, what would make us think it could not die in America? We, we must understand that what happened in Europe, it will happen in America. If things don't change. It's tragic. And we should lament the state of the church in America. Now, look at Joel 2. Look at Joel 2. I'm sorry. Joel 2 and 12. Therefore also, now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart, not your garment, and turn to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. Who knoweth if He will return and repent and, and leave a blessing behind Him, even a meat offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, those that suck the breast, and let the bridegroom go forth from his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to a reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? God called His people to a deep and great time of repentance, prayer, seeking His face and turning from it. He called His people to it. He didn't call the Babylonians to repent. He called His people. Repentance for what's going on in our nation. It has to start with us. But it has to start with us as God's people. It has to begin here. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17 that judgment must first begin where? In the house of God. Now, another thing, just a practical purpose, if we won't lament these things, who will? Are, are the atheists, are they going to, to lament this? Are those that are promoting agendas that want to crush out the church, are they going to, to lament this? No. If we will not lament, if we will not cry out, if we will not repent, then be sure no one else will. It must begin here with us. Look at verse 17. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. Give not thine heritage to a reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? The way I picture this is the porch, that's where the people are, where they come in. The altar, that's where God is, where they meet with God. Those who are spiritual leaders, they stand in between. They get between the altar where God and His anger and His judgment is and the people and their sin are. And here they plead with God on behalf of the people. They intercede. They stand in the gap. And they plead with God to spare them, to show mercy. And that's our job. That's our job. Our job is to stand between God and His anger. For if you do not believe God is angry with our nation, and even the church in America at its apathy, you are not reading Scripture well. We stand in the plate in the gap and we cry, Oh God, spare your church. Spare your people. Revive us again that we might rejoice in thee. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. Let's take time right here. We're just going to pray where we are and just cry out to God, intercede. For our nation, intercede for the church in America. Intercede for our church. Ask God to spare us, to grant us repentance and to show us mercy. Holy Father, we come tonight and we, we do fall down before You and we plead for mercy. Lord, we know the state of the church, Lord, it's not, it's not the devil's fault and it's not the atheist's fault and it's not the Muslim's fault. It's not the homosexual's fault. God, it's our fault. Father, we have allowed ourselves to become complacent. We 
have allowed ourselves to set back on past victories and say, well, that's what God did then and I'm happy with that. We have allowed ourselves to become lukewarm. We have not taken advantage of the freedom that we have, the opportunity that we have. We we just have not done what you have told us to do. And we confess that. We acknowledge our part in the problem. And Lord, we plead for mercy. We plead that you would spare our nation, that you would spare the churches in America. Lord, we do this with full confidence in your gracious, loving mercy that you bestow. I was reading in Ezekiel today, and you said that you would come down and plead with them face to face as you did with their fathers. Lord, your desire for your church to be wholly yours, it is greater than our desire for the church to be wholly yours. Your desire for our nation to be a city on a hill is greater than our desire for our nation to be a city on a hill. Your desire to give mercy truly is greater than our desire to seek that mercy, O God. But tonight we stand and we cry out, have mercy on your people. Restore the spiritual fervor of your church. Restore our zeal. Purge our lukewarmness. Purge our apathy. Search us and try us and see, O God, if there is anything in us that hinders what You want to do. And Lord, where there is, You make it clear and You bring us to repentance and You enable us to let it go, whatever that may be. We give ourselves and our church completely to You. Have Your way and do all the things that You want to do. Father, let the, let the church rise up. Truly, the church is the only organization in America that has the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we are the only ones that can make a difference. We are the only ones that can stem the tide and turn things around through Your power, through Your message, through Your Son, through Your Spirit. Help us, Father, to rise up and be the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now look at verses 21 through 26 of chapter 2. And we'll close here. These are some of the best verses in Joel. Fear not, O land, and be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field. The pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He hath given you the former rain moderately, and He will cause, cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain, the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. God's word here is, while the situation is bad, it is not hopeless. God promises great things for those who repent. But we, we don't leave here fearful or sad. We leave here rejoicing in the goodness, the faithfulness, and the greatness of our God. 
Yes, our nation is in a bad way. The church in America is in a bad way. But our God is greater than all things. If the church would turn to Him, if we would repent, if we would lay it all on the altar and give ourselves fully to Him, then He would restore us. He would give back what has been taken away. I love what it says in verse 25. And I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, the great army which I sent among you. The, the, the idea, the picture here is that God restores. He can restore what's been lost. What has been lost in our nation, what has been lost in the church in our nation can be restored, but only by God and only if we repent. He can restore the spiritual fervor that once existed. He can restore the spiritual power that once existed. He can bring revival. He can make the church a, a place really that, that makes an impact on the nation and the world around it as He intended. God can do all things. And God will do all that He has promised. And He has promised to restore if we repent, if we return, if His people who are called by His name humble themselves, turn to Him and repent of their sins, and He would heal their land. He would do great and mighty things. Let us leave rejoicing in the greatness of our God. Hearts heavy, yes, the condition of the nation, the condition of the church, but hearts filled with hope, the greatness and the goodness of our God. Right, let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer.